Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. And today I am joined in the studio by a watchmaker of far greater esteem than I, Dr. Rebecca Struthers of Struthers Watchmaking. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for joining us on the show. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And we have got you on the show at a very timely moment in your career as your new book is about to hit the shelves. So can you tell us a little bit about it? What's it called? Where people can pick it up and what they should expect? So the title is Hands of Time. Um, It's out in the UK on the 27th of April and in the US on June 13th. So yeah, basically it's my history of time told through watches. Um, As a watchmaker and restorer myself, um, obviously it's a subject very close to home. Um, and I'll be using watches as a, a kind of device to take us back 40,000 years in time to look at how we first discovered time um, and how our relationship with it has evolved over the centuries um, through some of the ingenious and incredible objects we've invented to measure it. So in the early pages of the book, you describe your personal background and literally the background behind your house, which was an area you played in as a child, and your first steps professionally that led you to discovering watchmaking as the fusion of art and science, among other things that you craved. Can you give us a recap of those early years, sparing no details for the listeners, please? <laughs> sure. Um, yes, yeah, so there's quite a bit of memoir in the book. Um, my background is very much the opposite of certainly what I've feel is a typical watchmaker's background or certainly what is advertised as um being a typical watchmaker's background i um i mean i didn't discover watchmaking at all until my late teens um and i did not come from the sort of background where i was exposed to well watches generally let alone high-end watches so i'm from uh, north birmingham my accent is fake um and I was uh, had a, a very strong Birmingham accent when I was younger, but I ended up going to um uh grammar school where it kind of got beaten out of me, literally and figuratively. Obviously, grammar school, huge amount of pressure on you to study proper subjects like science and mathematics and, and aim for that sort of a career. And I I mean I love science, I was really passionate about it, but I was I've always been really creative too and I love the arts and um yeah, I struggled. So I, I did all sciences for my higher exams and halfway through I just thought, you know, I can't I can't pretend this isn't for me, um, this isn't working. And I dropped out. I dropped out of high school and ran away to art school. You rebel. Yeah, I know. And um, it was literally like on a par with running away to join the circus um at the school I was at. I remember when my results came in, my teacher actually said Rebecca, are you sure you're making the right decision? You've actually, you've got good grades. You could do well. I'm like, why are you saying I can't do well doing this another way? Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, I've always been a bit of a rebel. But yeah, I, I ran away to art school and studied jewellery and silversmithing, um, which was a two-year course at the time. And by total coincidence, they taught watchmaking at the same university. And that's where I came across it. And yeah, that was the... The moment, kind of the epiphany for me when I first set foot in a watchmaking workshop and realised that you can be an engineer and a scientist and an artist and designer all at the same time in the same subject and that it does exist. And that was it. Never look back. Never look back, eh? I mean, it's been a, an amazing story since. We'll touch on exactly what you're doing now later on. But one of my favourite sections of the book deals with the earliest known timekeepers and the fascinating automata created by the finest minds of the day. 
Having done so much research into this field, is there one early timekeeper that really speaks to you and stands out as a personal favourite? Oh, it, I've always found it really hard to choose specific objects because it's more the the kind of what they say to me and the sentiment of them. I mean, the earliest timekeeper or possible timekeeper I reference is a bone carving that dates back over 40,000 years. And it might be a lunar tally calendar. Um, but obviously at that sort of age, we have no instruction manual to go with these. So we'll never know for sure. But um, it's a, the, the first evidence that we have certainly of, of calculation um, in human history. And I love the way the bone is um, is been handled a lot over the years that it was being used to the point that it's almost polished. And I love those, it's those sort of details when you just have this vision of this object that hasn't survived with any of its kind of contextual history, but you can see the marks of hands and wear and use on them. So you know that this was obviously something that was really important to people and used over a long time. And now if it's, like this little window back 40,000 years is a really magical thing. Can you imagine what it must be like to discover something like that? You know, to, to do it on earth, like a, a, a hoard of treasure or a cave full of artifacts that give us that window into the past. It must be, must be crazy, must be transformative. Yeah, I mean, it gives me goosebumps when I find just little maker's marks and signatures and, and fingerprints even hidden inside watches. So to find something of that scale is yeah it blows my mind i mean the guy who came across the artifacts in the cave there were thousands of artifacts found in total um he was actually just collecting bat guano for fertilizer and digging in the cave and came across all these old things and reported it to a local university and then yeah it turned out to be one of the most significant discoveries in in our history must have been an almost spiritual experience for him to discover such significant objects in there. And talking of that, at the start of chapter three, you discuss your upbringing as an atheist, but the fact you're drawn to churches and cathedrals as places of peace and reminders of our, <laughs> our insignificance in the face of the universe's vastness. Funnily enough, I was raised in a nominally Methodist household, but I've never ascribed to religion, but also find myself weirdly nourished, I guess, by places of worship. And interestingly, I always got the same feeling from working on watches. And I wondered if you thought that there's a direct link there in an almost soothing acceptance of our own mortality when confronted with monuments of eternity like churches and artifacts of ephemerality like watches. Is Would you say maybe that watchmaking is kind of your religion? I think the science is certainly my religion um, and watchmaking is very much part of that. Yeah, science is, I definitely say science generally is more my religion and watchmaking is part of that. I have quite a holistic approach to time now. Yeah, I I suppose I've always kind of felt like watches are more beautiful objects um, that I really appreciate and love having around with me more than something that tells the time and regulates my day and has any level of control over me. I've never felt controlled by these as objects if that makes sense um more so by seasons weirdly i feel pressure if i know i've got a big deadline coming and i can feel the seasons changing and it's like winter is coming and i haven't got this project out yet that is more more than days on calendars i don't i have no idea why that is interesting but like you say like watches can be many things to many different people i guess and to many of us the beauty of the objects is perhaps the most important thing and there was one thing that you spoke about that i'd actually never heard of and i was fascinated by it 
this emerald cased watch found as part of a cheap side hoard. Because like I, I was so amazed by it because to my knowledge, there's never been a watch made from the same material in modern watchmaking. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about this wonderful form watch as it's known and tell them what a form watch is if it, if they don't know and explain why the emerald case is such a stunning achievement? Yeah, um, form watches are so-called because their watches literally made in the form of something else. Um, and they were made; they were popular sort of end of the 16th and early 17th centuries. And they could literally be anything from crucifixes and Bibles to stars. And there's a beautiful rock crystal snail at the British Museum. Um, other animals like rabbits, hares, doves, pheasants, um, shells, flowers. You name it, they they made a watch in the form of its skulls. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, was famously reported to have a skull-shaped watch, a memento mori watch. And one incredible example of this is the emerald case watch that you mentioned, which is a, the collection in the collection of the Museum of London. Um, and that was found as part of the Cheapside Hoard, which was buried, talking of finding things and the kind of goosebumps moment. Um, it was found by builders working... Um, and a site in Cheapside around a century ago, and they were digging and found a hoard of gold and enamel jewellery and precious gemstones, which um, I think that anyone who goes hunting for stuff, detectorists or mudlarks um, and watchmakers, we know. One of the magical things about precious metals and enamel and gemstones is that they don't really suffer from the elements in the same way that other metals might. So gold that's been buried under the ground for 300 years will be just as bright and beautiful as gold that's just been made. So when they dug these things up, there's that like instant sparkle and glitter of something magic. And yeah, it was uh, ended up going to the Collection Museum of London. And um, one of the pieces was this incredible little um, hexagonal, I think it is, um, emerald watch. And it's probably about the size of a large cherry tomato. It's not a big thing. And the whole case is carved from a single piece of emerald. And the movement sits inside like a hollowed out carving within this. And there's a little emerald lid that goes over the top of it too. Um, the dial is uh, gilded and then in green enamel. So it all fits in. Unfortunately, um, it's the, the movement hasn't survived as well as the case. It's the only thing with kind of ferrous content in there. So they haven't been able to open it. And we don't know who made it. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's a feat of engineering. It would have required an incredibly talented uh, stonecutter, lapidarist to create the case, working closely with a watchmaker. Um, yeah, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And these things were made before we'd harness electric lighting or motors. You know, it's, yeah. Unbelievable. Mm. There can't be many people in the world today that have the level of skill to create something like that, right? No, there wouldn't have been then and there definitely aren't now. Um, a lot of the skills required for watchmaking are quite endangered, both here in the UK and elsewhere. Um, Switzerland recently moved to protect watchmaking under the UNESCO Convention for Intangible Cultural Heritage because, I mean, even over there, they're struggling with some of the very fine niche skill sets sort of making gongs for repeaters and um even traditional finishing it's hard to get people who have that level of of hand skill they're very niche jobs within an already quite niche job of watchmaking 
yeah, there are very few people that are able to work expertly in these fields today and create the kind of things that perhaps in the past would have been more common. On that note, you worked with a, another watchmaking institution to create an enamel dial for one of your projects, right? Yeah, we've worked with quite a few different um, artisans and designers. So we've worked with Anne Ordain um, up in Glasgow, who specialise in enamel dials. We'd been independently working on enamel dials and struggling to get the, the finish to the quality that we wanted. And um, they spotted what we were doing and we saw what they were doing. And yeah, we ended up sharing, yeah, sharing all of our research and development really to get this over the final hurdle and couldn't have completed it without them. Um, we've got our engraver, um, is based in Germany. Um, yeah, we work with kind of guilders and, and actually we work with a couple of engravers too. And occasionally with goldsmiths and a lapidurist as well. Our first watch, we had to have a rock crystal case cut for it. So we do have a nice little, uh, collective, creative collective. We like to, we restore us by training. So we kind of. I, th- I was about to say we grew up with this history. Kind of, we grew up in our careers with this, with this history of how um, how these sort of watchmakers used to make these beautiful objects, and it was through these collectives of incredibly talented artisans, which is what we've kind of tried to recreate in the twenty first century. Just instead of trying to find people down the road with the skills, we can now use Instagram, which is quite handy. <laughs> Something they didn't have. <laughs> Talking of Instagram and Anne Ordain, I was chatting to Lewis this morning because he's a good mate of mine and we had him on the show a few episodes back. I don't know, maybe 20 episodes back by the time this episode comes out. And uh, we had a bit of a back and forth about his mum's Instagram account, which I was desperate to find and share with the watchmaking community. And he was desperate for me not to find and to not share with the watchmaking community. But I now have to find it. <laughs> Oh, good luck. Okay. I, when we get off air, I will share what I know about Lewis's mom's Instagram and together maybe we can seek her out because I think she deserves to be, you know, a superstar in the watchmaking industry. And uh, it's a shame that he's trying to hold her back, I think, because he's, he's, he's pretty pretty nice as, as a guy generally, but he just doesn't want his mom to steal the limelight, I suppose. So what, what's his mom? What's his mom's Instagram account? Tell me about this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I know. I know a name and I know that she's into flowers and beaches. And he was like, oh, you know, we don't need any more flowers and beaches in our lives. And I was like, Lewis, that's exactly what we need. Yeah, we do. Trying times, more flowers and beaches. I was just going to say if she could get some like kittens and puppies in there too, that would just be perfect. Yeah. So maybe we could like seek her out and then like advise her on how to, you know, preach to a larger audience. But yeah, yeah Lewis will probably kill me. He'll probably kill me for this. Hopefully he doesn't listen. I'm really glad that you work with Van Ordain because they are one of my favorite brands for exactly that specialization in the craft of vitreous enamel dials. And the work that you did together was absolutely jaw-dropping. It's, I think, one of the most beautiful watches I've ever seen in my life. And that fusion of your expertise just came off perfectly. So congratulations and thanks. Thank you. That's very kind of you. But you couldn't do it without the people we work with. So, yeah. That's the thing, though, isn't it? You really appreciate, like you say, that necessity of collaboration and that shared vision and finding partners that you can work with to create such wonderful objects for everyone in the watchmaking community and hopefully beyond to enjoy is uh, just a, a real pleasure to to witness. Thank you. So you make some comments in the book about how important it is to spend time wisely, but the guilt that you feel whenever not working towards a particular goal. And that really resonated with me because I suffer from the same insatiable desire to be productive and then also the 
crippling anxiety that comes with that when you don't live up to your own ridiculously high expectations. But how has that affected your relationship with time? And how do you think your profession has uh, also been affected by that relationship that you have? It's a tricky. I'm a lot better than I used to be. I used to let things get on top of me really, really badly. And it did really affect my mental health, which I talk about in the book as well, which then affected my physical health. So I have, over the last few years, developed a very different relationship with time than I used to. And I think more productive. I certainly feel happier for it. Um, But I'm sure this is a very um, kind of common thing that a lot of us experience is that, yeah, that feeling of having to make the most of your time and the guilt for not always finding something to do, even if you're on holiday, not keeping on top of your emails, even if you're trying to relax in the evening, not checking your social media, even like you always feel like you're going to be doing something towards your work. Um, and this is one of the interesting things in the book. I kind of went back to uh, to the possibly the root cause of where some of our kind of time guilt complex comes from, looking at Puritanism um, in the 17th century and how this first idea that kind of uh, the devil makes work for idle hands to do. So we've got to keep busy all of the time to be good people and good citizens and, um, and how much that still influences us today. Um, so you can see in the watches that were made at that era, you can follow the transition between Catholicism and and uh, Calvinism and Puritanism. You can follow it in the design of the watches, and you can follow it in the makers as they um, travelled or often fled around Europe, escaping various religious persecutions. Um, and you can track it in our social and cultural relationship with time to this day. Uh, so that was the era we went from kind of living by what the world threw at us, so living far more in tune with the things like the seasons to becoming increasingly uh, kind of, what's the word, regulated, that's what I'm looking for, um, to becoming increasingly regulated by clock time. Um, so the beginning of the end of the work-life balance is what I call it. <laughs> I'm sure that you are your greatest critic yourself, but it seems to me that you've spent your time very well indeed, and it seems like it's been something that's always been with you, certainly from the early days of your studies in watchmaking, you said that one of the first tasks as a student was making a movement holder and the lengths that you went to personalize it were just crazy. Like you, you finished it especially and you had like a, a jewel cut for the, for the button release, right? Yeah. I, um, well, I set a lapis lazuli that I had cut. I sourced the stone, had it cut and then set it in the, um, winding little knurled, um, button at the end of it to open and close the movement holder, which we didn't have to do. And I did a load of different finishes on it and I gilded my as well. And then Rebellious Rebecca, that was my nickname. I mean, it's a perfect one. It fits and it's a, it's a great one, by the way. You should get some t-shirts made up with that on it as well. Um, but did you always have that slightly rebellious creativity? And is it something that you noticed in any of your peers while you were studying or was it exclusive to you? Can Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course you're allowed to swear. <laughs> I mean, I've always been a tenacious little shit. As my parents were. Sir, Dr. Rebecca Struthers, people, you know, the, the most accomplished <laughs> horological academic in the UK yes. right now. <laughs> yes, no getting rid of me. Um, which has had um, varying receptions throughout. I mean, I was a challenging kid at primary school, so I was always 
getting bored and wanting to do more, um, which didn't always go down well and wasn't particularly encouraged. Same at secondary school. It wasn't really, yeah, encouraged. Um, so there weren't, I suppose there weren't many, as many people like me in that respect, but that's never really put me off. Um, yeah, I, most of my career has been found by me um, moving away from things I knew weren't right for me rather than me heading towards things I wanted to do. I finding watchmaking was an accident and me setting up my first business was a result of me having a really stressful work experience and thinking, right, I need to change or I need to give up and I'm not going to give up because I'm a tenacious little shit. Um, so I need to I need to make a big change and so yeah, right, I'm going to set up my own business. Um, so it wasn't some grand design that I kind of um, was looking out the window thinking, oh, how great could I be if I did it alone? It was more like kind of adapt or die. Um, yeah, so I just, yeah, sticking sticking with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going anywhere. You um, you met your husband, Craig, while you were studying horology? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. you and Craig now work together for Struthers Watchmakers. Obviously, we know Craig's very talentless, and uh, we can talk about him at length as well if you want, because he's a top bloke. Um, but did you see any similar talents in any of your classmates back then? And have any of them gone on to do something similar or have they all carved their own career paths in different directions? We've all been pretty different. I mean, we had a good few years um, across our years. So one of um, the guys in Craigslist is now at Frodsham um, and taught at Manchester for a while, who I think you know, AP. Um, in our year we've, yeah so we've had a few um, yeah really good watchmakers but not I don't know I, yeah I suppose I've always been a bit of an outsider and fortunately having been like that since I was a kid it's something I'm quite comfortable with being on the outside is when um, I, I came at watchmaking from a jewellery background and I'll never forget things like, like yeah I, so I was being quite creative even in the technical tasks we were being given and then by the time I was in my second year, another guy started who'd done jewellery before and now was doing watchmaking. And everyone was like, oh, wow, this guy's done jewellery before. It's going to be the next big thing. That's such a great way to get into it. While I was there like, uh, hello. I'm <laughs> happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I had a bit of a hard time with some of the tutors as well. And yeah, it's, um, I say it's just, yeah, tenacity is what I put it down to and just being relentlessly irritating for some people um and not being scared of <laughs> being scared of that well it is so important because i mean you will always come up against some resistance from your tutors or your you know the people that have gone before you in the industry if you enter it with a modicum of talent or creativity and certainly the rebellious streak which i'm sure was never too far from the surface I, I also got into a lot of trouble when I was studying watchmaking because I was more interested in the academic side of things than the practical. I was not a terrible watchmaker, but I certainly wasn't on the level that you and Craig are. And I really, I, I rubbed up my tutors the wrong way because of my just resistance to being taught, I suppose. Like I, I just did my own thing and you clearly have done the same thing. But what other kind of resistances did you run into? Because I'm sure your experience as a woman in watchmaking is very different from mine because I'm not a woman and I'm fully aware of that and I have no idea what it's like to be in a workshop that is generally quite male-dominated when you are. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think, to be honest, that was the bulk of the resistance that I really 
what I actually struggled with. Um, my first couple of tutors were lovely. Um, one of them had a tendency of associating watch theory with shoes to try and help me understand it, which was really a waste of time on me because I just wear Converse most of the time. Nice. <laughs> that was kind of my go-to, all vans. Yeah, but he was lovely. And then it was in partway through, start my second year, partway through, a new tutor started who really did not see the point of me being in the workshop. Oh, really? It was that obvious? Yeah, I mean, I got a summer placement at one point and he phoned. Um, a guy in the year above me didn't get a place and he phoned the company in question and asked them to withdraw my place to give to this other guy. Um, and later, this is within the last few years, Craig spoke to him over the phone. Um, so he had someone who was looking for a job and he's working at a, a goldsmith now. And he directly said to Craig that there's no point training women because they'll only leave the industry to have children. Good grief. So he was a tutor. He was a university tutor. And he said that. To, so Craig's witnessed it now too. He knows it's not just me. But yeah, so that, that makes why he treated me the way he did quite apparent now. Because he's just a great AR soul. Yeah. Yeah, you get him. You do get him. But he is, it is changing a bit. And I think it's helping now that watchmakers are generally getting younger. So at the point that I started my training too, I was one of the youngest people on the course by quite a long way. Um, one of my tutors joked that um, horology is a subject that becomes more interesting the less time you have left. Um, which certainly seemed to be the case. We had a lot of people taking it up as a retirement hobby and they were by and large uh, gentlemen too. So having a young woman in a space with men over the age of 50, 60, sometimes 70 of life, um, was not always a comfortable place to be. And because I was so young as well, I hadn't really, yeah, wasn't entirely prepared for that. Yeah, that is something of a double whammy, I suppose, if you're, you know, marked out for your uh, gender to begin with. And then also, like, you haven't maybe experienced decades of marginalization already. It could be quite a shock to the system. I, I kind of witnessed it with the year below me at the British School of Watchmaking, because in my year, there was six of us and we were all, all men. But below us, there was two women in that class. And I witnessed it firsthand as well, but obviously when it's not happening to, to me or to one, oneself, then you can never really like understand the impact. And I tried to speak to the women in the year below me to see how they felt about it. And they were maybe, I guess, quite a bit older than you would have been at the time you were studying. They were in their mid to late twenties and they were almost galvanized against it because they'd experienced it in every job they'd had already. And I, I, I couldn't fathom it um that's my problem i guess i just I, I don't see i never saw why there should be that division um between the sexes if the person is capable and good at doing something then I, I don't know why it should matter but to some especially the old guard it seems to and that's really a shame it, it does seem to be more of a problem with the old guard like you say um i think and that's what i'm hoping is why it's changing the more young fresh people we get in this you don't have the same kind of preconceived ideas i yeah it, it's true i mean i have quite a high tolerance level for these sort of things as well i think it, it's more my frustration when people try and hold back my career because they have an idea of what i should be doing 
Again, I'm better at venting my frustration these days than I was back then too. I could be quite hot-headed. That's something that people have to learn though, you know, because a lot of people when they're young, especially they internalize it because it's almost like a shock response. Like you don't know what to do. Like if you've never been put in that situation before, for whatever reason, whether it's because you're a woman or because you're inclined to, to pursue a different aspect of the industry from the one you're supposed to, it's 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 very hard to to know when you can stand your ground, dig your heels in and say, no, that's not okay. You can't treat me like that. You shouldn't push me aside because I don't fit into a certain mold. So yeah, it's unbelievable. But yeah, the youth seem to have the key to the future. I think I, I was amazed when I first started working on the constant at how different it was. And don't get me wrong, there's a huge amount of ingrained sexism in the industry still. And I, I think it's a while away from, you know, not being an issue at all. But I was pleased to see Nomos when I was working for them. Their watchmakers were actually majority female. I think it was 54% of the workshop was female. And because the craft of watchmaking is a far more mainstream pursuit as a career in Europe, especially in this part of Germany where I live in Switzerland. There's been quite a lot more people going through that process earlier because, uh, I mean, in England, as you speak about in the book, there was a huge dearth of watchmaking talent throughout the quartz crisis. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about the quartz crisis in a minute because I, I love that part of history. But I wanted to touch on something else that you mentioned, and that was the patron-maker relationship. And you specifically speak about the relationship between Mudge and Von Brühl and how important that relationship was to Mudge and his creations and how involved their relationship was, how deeply he went into his designs, even from a very technical perspective. And you also say that these relationships are still very important to you and Craig because you're making stuff, but you're not necessarily collecting vast swarms of watches or wearing a great many different types of watches. And you get the feedback from your clients that can help inform you on things you'd otherwise not be uh, so well acquainted with. So what do you think the most valuable client feedback you've received is? It's probably difficult to say one thing, but just some general thoughts on that subject. I don't think there is one thing really. We work quite closely. I mean, we make very small numbers of watches and they're incredibly bespoke. So we can afford to have quite a close working relationship with our clients. And um, even 248, that's our two watchmakers, four hands and an eight mil lathe project where we made everything ourselves. It was a good being able to, um, we designed some new numerals with that that we were able to send to the clients and get their feedback on the hands as well the design of the hands doing like literally we're filing back these hands and like what do you think of this do you like this now what do you prefer um yeah and dial designs and cases as well having a few people when we or, or just generally if you're making a one-off watch being able to it's the only time we use modern technology really is sometimes we 3d print prototypes of cases that are kind of cheap easy to send out which is good with customs and stuff obviously if you're trying to send things to clients yeah that they can try in their wrist and let us know how the feel and fit of the case is before we go ahead and start making the whole thing up in precious metal so all of that i mean what watches are like to wear on a daily basis the weight of them the size of them that's the sort of that a lot of the aesthetic details we find it's really useful with our with kind of referring to clients and getting their feedback on that but yeah, every client that we have is involved in the design of their watch. And, you know, we love hearing back from clients as well of how they're getting on with them, rating their winding experience, <laughs> things like that. It's, it's really useful because at the end of the day, our 
yeah, our clients are the ones who are wearing and using our watches, not us. So what's really important is that they're having a really positive experience and, and appreciate the design of it and enjoy wearing it when it's finished. And watchmakers aren't best placed to know that. We need to speak to our, yeah, our patrons to find that out. It must be interesting. Does it like give you ideas for future watches as well, like new designs that you want to make, new things that you might need to find, new collaborative partners to work with to bring to life? Oh, yeah. I mean, we get people coming to us um, with ideas all the time. We're hopefully going to be doing a painted enamel dial soon. It's going to be our, our next thing. Um, oh, wow. Based on the request of a client. So, yeah, it's really good fun. It, it helps push us. We push ourselves anyway, but it helps kind of, yeah, just bring something new to the table. And it is just me and Craig in our workshop too. We don't have any other staff. So it, it almost expands our team to have a design consultant for <laughs> for a brief while who's also a client, which isn't to say that we do absolutely anything. Of course, we do keep tight rein on everything, but um, it, yeah, it's, it is invaluable feedback and it's quite humbling, really. Some of the people we work for, just like Mudge did, um, I mean, a very senior, exciting, talented people in themselves and that they're kind of giving you their time and feedback is really, really valuable. You know, I couldn't afford to hire these people. <laughs> so for them to like give me any of their time in a kind of, yeah, supplying this kind of feedback is really, really useful and most very gratefully received. You said that you've had quite a few clients that work in surgery and I was really intrigued by the analysis of the human hand and how complicated that was and how it pertains to the complexities of watchmaking and I, I think maybe those two careers like have a, a shared what should we say a, a thematic congruence which makes a lot of sense but yeah you're right I mean could you imagine trying to hire a top ranked surgeon as a design consultant you'd uh oof, that'd cripple your budget yeah yeah um also wouldn't want to take them out of the operating place because it's kind of that's important they're there <laughs> but no um, Yes. Uh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. The people we work with are just, yeah, it's, it's, I've weirdly accidentally ended up creating quite a nice little career zone for myself. It's, uh, I can't complain. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful and it'll probably only continue to grow as you pursue new projects and branch out into different areas of specialization. Uh, you mentioned your respect for Breguet's preference for engine turned dial designs or. Rose engine created dial designs and one of the finest modern guys I know doing that is Josh Shapiro in the US. Yeah, amazing. He's pretty good, right? He's he's pretty Yeah. Uh do you think we'll see a collaboration between Struthers and Shapiro? Maybe. I'd be open to that. Um we've got uh we work with an engine turner in the UK at the moment. We've just started working with. Um, but we are, we're not one of these British, we, everything's got to be British brands, hence our German engraver. It's about finding the best people wherever they are in the world. And that's kind of a little, even though it's just me and Craig, we kind of feel these other creative people like Anne Dane as well, a part of our extended workshop family, which we like to have people all over the world. And yeah, I hope that continues to grow and I'd love to keep finding new people. I'm always on the hunt. That's one of the wonderful things social media is good for, um, and Instagram in particular is, yeah, finding new people doing amazing stuff that you'd never have heard of in any other way. Yeah, like it helps you push your own creative boundaries, and it, it just like having a patron, it's someone else bringing something new to the table that you wouldn't 
they've been able to access in any other way. Talking of the best people to work with, you were lucky enough to meet George Daniels while he was still alive. And I'm sure that was quite a affecting moment. I mean, I never got to meet him. I have, I have a copy of his book signed, which I, I got at my graduation. I think it was the last year that there was one of those available because he'd passed away the year before, unfortunately. Um, what do you think he would make of what you've done with your time since you met? Because he encouraged you to do what you're doing right now. Yeah, I, he was a character. There's no denying that. I, I only met him very briefly on two occasions. And um, the first one was when I was working at an auction house and my boss introduced me and said, oh, this is Rebecca, she's a watchmaker. And he just scoffed and was like, so what are you doing at an auction house? Why aren't you making watches? Sounds a bit right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I did say that in one day I really hoped to. I'd love to make my own watch. And he, yeah, he was just like, oh, I hope to see that someday. You'll have to show me. And I was like, oh. Cool. Wow. But <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, which is really lovely. And then literally that was that. And then the second time I bumped into him, I think it was at a salon QP and he was on the Prosecco oh, champagne and um, fell face first into my cleavage um, from which he was extracted by his minder, who was probably about the same age as he was. But it was incredibly entertaining. I can't deny it. It was a very strange situation to be like, oh, hello, George Daniels down there. Oh, good grief. Yeah, could you imagine? See, that's, like I said, I've got a very high threshold. I don't mind stuff like that at all. It was, it was all highly comical, but just a very, yeah, a very strange way to um, have a second. And that was the last time I met it. Maybe that's what finished him off. Shit. What, your cleavage? <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> oh dear. I don't know, maybe that from a podcast. <laughs> this, 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 honestly, I, 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 I'm a bit suspicious about this because although I never met George Daniels, I knew him to be a canny old git. So uh, I don't know. I've been around a lot of people full of a lot of champagne and a lot of Prosecco and nobody falls into my cleavage no matter how hard I try to get them. But bloody hell. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe not, yeah, trying hard enough. No, I hope George would approve of what I'm doing now because I, I feel like he was a tenacious little shit at times as well. So uh, yeah, I I think that's probably the best obituary you could probably uh, offer. It. I think he'd be pretty happy with it to be honest. I think that's exactly what he would like to be remembered for, and of course his exceptional contribution to horology, which is still seen around us in many ways today. Not just with Smith's continuation of his legacy, but also the coaxial escapement, which is ever more um, proliferating the Omega collection right now. But what do you think he would make? of the state of British watchmaking specifically as it is now and going forward? God, so, I mean, obviously I didn't really know him. That's more of a question for Roger than it would be for someone like me. Um, if it were me looking at it now, I'm not sure I'd mind entirely because um, it's it's doing its own thing, isn't it? And people are doing things in their own ways. And I think that's really cool. Like we have such a diversity of, of different brands here who are doing everything from designing stuff and outsourcing everything to making every component from scratch. We've got, um, I think what Bremont are doing is really exciting. Like to, I, I don't know if you visited the wing. I haven't actually. No, they have invited me. I've not been banned despite being a former employee. They are very um, graciously encouraging me to come back and see what's going on. But that is that is pretty impressive, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, it was, although, like I said, completely opposite end of the spectrum of what we do, it was a humbling experience being in a company so big, employing so many people in the UK. Like, I've not seen that kind of a facility outside of Switzerland or South Germany. It's 
not something we've had here for a very long time and a huge achievement. And yeah, I like the diversity. I like that everyone's different. And I don't know, maybe George would just sit back and think, hmm, okay. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I think that diversity is the word. And that's something that Britain and British watchmakers themselves should be very proud of. Like you say, there's, uh, I mean, how many crafts was it you used to say? Was there 34 different separate crafts that go into making a watch or something along those lines? And yeah, it seems to be like um, that to the power of 10 ways of doing it, ways of being an effective contributor to not just watchmaking in general, but also a nation's pursuits therein. And Bremont are doing something completely different from you and Craig, and you and Craig are doing something quite different from Roger Smith, and Roger Smith is doing something totally different from Anne O'Dane or Schofield or Christopher Ward, for example. And I think having so many different things to look at and so many different things to be proud of in terms of a you know national export is um, only a good thing. And I think he'd be pretty happy. I think he'd be pretty chuffed with you, to be honest. I think that's the kind of thing he would be quite enthused by but i think you'd see the merit in the others as well and exactly what they're doing for everyone in that boat yeah i hope so i hope so and of course george was a writer as well so yeah maybe i wonder if he'd like my book oh i'm sure i'm sure he'd love your book i mean i i don't read as much as i probably should to be honest but i did feel compelled to read your work not just because i have a great deal of respect for you and your career but i was just incredibly curious and i was like i I can't wait to see what she's done here because i remember one of the few things i really remember from my own training was reading the book longitude about john harrison and his pursuit to win the longitude prize which he ultimately did although i don't think it was paid out um, in full until his very old age and maybe not even entirely while he was still alive. But what do you think the challenges that modern watchmaking is facing that could be put maybe not on the same scale as the longitudinal problem that was faced in those early days of uh, ocean navigation? But what do you think the big things are that watchmakers have to contend with these days? I mean, in terms of an equivalent of Harrison's wrangling with the border longitude probably as watch brands now wrangling with running a business in the 21st century doesn't feel entirely dissimilar at times everything from yeah i had this conversation with someone the other day everything from like marketing and accounts and finance and doing your bookkeeping and all the rest of it and the now yeah trying to import and export and yeah post-brexit is even more challenging than it was beforehand. And um, yeah, there's so much red tape now. There's the one thing I don't see when I read um, historic accounts from watchmakers and and the issues they're facing. I never see anyone complaining about the amount of red tape. I do think this is quite um, a contemporary occurrence that we have so many hurdles to jump just to run the business. And then you've got to find time to make watches on top of that. So that, I mean, that's the biggest challenge we find is finding the time to do the business side of things when you've just got two watchmakers who are only really making money and being productive when we're at the bench and now got to run a whole business around it. It's, um, that's a real challenge. I don't think John Harrison would have enjoyed that at all. No, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't. And I, I don't know if many people really enjoy it per se, but you know, you have to do everything, right? You have to do like press releases yourselves, you social media stuff, the whole shebang. We're not very good at marketing at all, to be honest, which is probably why quite a lot of people still haven't heard of us. Yeah, yeah social media as well takes so much time and that's such a skill. 
I've actually just started working with someone to help me with my social media in the run up to the book because I'm just I'm looking at my calendar thinking no way and we've set the bar quite high for ourselves as well so like, I can't just take a photo and put it on Instagram I need to like <laughs> take 50 photos and vet them and then still decide they're not good enough and then like put it down for another day and then try again the next day <laughs> and it, um yeah it's just it's just too much I just I, I like being locked in dark rooms making stuff and writing and um, that's what I'm good at. So how did you find the process of writing the book? I mean, firstly, how long did it take? And were those hours hours that you enjoyed? Yeah, I, I love writing um, and I love research. There's something I've always done alongside the making as I've always done um, research and writing too. So yeah, I mean, that was a really natural kind of progression to move it into doing a, a full book. Sections of the book are from my PhD. So I go back to sort of 2008. I started writing those and then a lot of it was uh, lockdown. So um, I actually signed the deal for my book. It was February. I think it was the, the deal was like 20 something of February 2020. So this is just at the point where we're hearing news reports about things going on and there was a virus and no one knew what it was going to become. But yeah, through all the lockdowns and stuff, our workshop was quite a long way from our home. So we couldn't get to our main workshop. We converted a potting shed at home <laughs> and put a few lanes in it, which allowed us to do a bit more, but it was one in, one out. It was so small. So, um, yeah, we couldn't work in there together at the same time anyway. So this it gave me something to do during that time. And, um, yeah, it's uh, I really enjoyed it. I love writing, um, editing, and then the obviously the marketing, the book going out, I find more stressful. But... Again, mate, I think it's the watchmaker in me just being stuck alone somewhere in the quiet and the dark, like a mushroom, just <laughs> getting on with your thing. That's, um, yeah, that's my happy space. Nice. Yeah, you sound like a little gremlin when you describe yourself like that. You know that, right? Oh, I really am. Yeah. I mean, it, to the point it even freaks Craig out. Oh, is he not as bad as you? No. And like he he is normal, more normal, I think, me. And like he likes warm spaces. Like he'll just put the heating on and stuff if it's cold. Whereas I don't like putting the heating on and I quite like the cold. So we're like gender opposites in that way. I'll just put more jumpers on. And there were times he'd come into the room I was working in and I'll literally be there with fingerless gloves and a coat and a hat on hunched in the dark over my laptop and he'd turn the light on and I'd be like <laughs> creepy as fuck yeah he's like why are you sitting in the dark in the cold because like, I like it this way turn the light out oh god my dad would love you he's uh that's his philosophy as well put another jumper on all right dad it's a very Oliver Twist approach to writing uh, yeah, quite so. I can imagine. I think just a candle flickering in the corner. <laughs> it's a very atmospheric image. Yeah, thanks for painting it so expertly. But um, you must have had quite a lot of experience of writing about horological themes. Now, your PhD is in antiquarian horology, correct? Yes, that's right. So, how did it come about that you were able to study a PhD in that subject in the UK? Well, I mean, it was um, another weird one, I suppose. I I'd done a master's in history of art and design um, and started working on horology through that. It says currently, no, I think there still isn't a master's in horology in the UK. So art and design is one way you can kind of study watches and watchmaking within another subject. Um, so you have to do, obviously, do more than watchmaking. But um, 
yeah, so I managed to tailor it to to what I wanted to do. And then off the back of that, it was my final dissertation was spotted by some tutors who suggested I go for funding for a PhD because I wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. And yeah, I was I'm the first person in my direct family to go to university, so it wasn't. I never again never set out to do a PhD, but went for the funding and got it. And yeah, that was three years of full time PhD and full time work. But um, yeah, it's actually, I find it really natural because either I'm working on watches or I'm writing about watches. So I'm always in the zone. Yeah. So yeah, the two just flow into each other and restorers have to be historians anyway to perform their job. So it's just writing about what we do for a living anyway. So that, yeah, it really works. I have a huge amount of admiration for the people who do like evening classes in subjects outside of their job. I don't know how they move headspace like that. But for me, yeah, it was really natural. Uh, it's difficult, isn't it, to undertake something alongside a career? I suppose in, in many cases, the people pursuing those courses in the evening maybe don't see their career as their end goal. You know, maybe that, I don't know, if you're doing a job that is just a job to you and you want to transition into another field, perhaps it is easier because perhaps less of your headspace is occupied by your daily grind but i don't know i guess everybody's experience of that is different and um, much respect to you for finding the time and the energy to do it is um, impressive but what well there's one part of the book well the middle part uh is largely dominated by the history uh walking us through the more modern history of watchmaking you talk quite extensively about the quartz crisis which is a period of history that i never tire of investigating and i think you map it out really really well for anyone that hasn't heard of it before but for our listeners that maybe haven't, could you give us a quick rundown of what exactly the quartz crisis is, what happened, when it happened, why it's important, and yeah, how it's affected the next couple of generations of watchmakers that followed it? Yeah, sure. I mean, the quartz crisis is something that's kind of historically been perceived as when quartz watches stepped in um, and overtook the market for traditional crafted or mechanical watches. And there was certainly a massive downturn in the mechanical watch manufacturing scene um, particularly in Switzerland at the time um, quartz watches were a lot cheaper they were more accurate and they could produce, be produced a lot faster so higher volumes uh, in reality it was a bit more complicated than that she also had currency issues and also kind of a stagnation of a long-standing trade in Switzerland by that point they'd been kind of leaders of the pack in watchmaking for the best part of a century so yeah there was a uh, failing Swiss traditional Swiss brands that were bought out by um, in the end by Nicholas Hayek, who um, obviously famously founder of Swatch, and um, Swatch saved the day in many ways. So through the reorganisation of these watch companies and through revenue brought in through quartz watch sales, um, brought together and rescued much of the Swiss industry. And now the two live happily alongside each other, I think. Um, but it was a yeah near miss for the industry and. Something we still experience the kind of, yeah, the shadow of today in some ways. So I mentioned in the book about you can see it in the restoration of mechanical watches of that era. As, uh, there was, it literally got to the point that it was perceived that there was no future in mechanical watchmaking anymore. Everyone was throwing away the mechanical watches. Everyone wanted quartz. And as a result, not much care and attention was given to the mechanical watches of that day. So even in service centres, there was a huge amount of pressure on on technicians to 
repair a watch and get it out as quickly as possible without necessarily taking the best care of the watch to do it. And now we have those watches coming through for servicing and restoration today, some of which haven't worked now since the 70s or 80s. Um, and we're kind of picking up the pieces and putting them back to right. But yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I can't judge the watchmakers of that era because they were under a huge amount of pressure. We've met some of them and they've said like they had to make a balance staff in half an hour and fit it and get the watch out. And that's just not, you can't work well in those conditions. But it, I mean, it, it is changing now. Um, I think the biggest area I can see kind of we're, we're still facing the echoes of it is in things like restoration. We lost a lot of skills um, and there was a big gap in investing in passing on restoration skills um, that yeah we still suffer from. We do not have enough watch restorers in the UK and I, I suspect possibly in the world, certainly judging by how far afield our clients find us from. Do you think that there's any chance that we might see a second quartz revolution, not in the same way as the first, not really to unfound what luxury or high-end watchmaking has become? Because I think it's really transformed into something it never was before the quartz crisis and it had to rebirth itself in a new way. But do you think that the interest in quartz technology will rise up again in the future and we might see some more creative things being done with that technology to push it forward or not? It's hard to say. I mean, I'm mechanical watchmaking is my field. So that's what I know well and what I enjoy and, and can get my head around because you can't, you can't fix quartz watches in the same way. It's like new cars and old cars. Like, I like lifting a bonnet and you can see what works and how. <laughs> Not a load of circuit boards and stuff. That just throws me completely. I mean, I don't know about the potential future for quartz atomic time. It's obviously the next big thing. Um, and how accurate that's becoming now. But I do think as a species, we are reaching the end of what we need to know in terms of time to regulate our lives with atomic time. And um, certainly that, that gets us to where we need to be with things like broadcasting needs super accurate time and obviously finance and stock exchange is influenced by that. But beyond those niches, us living our day-to-day -day life, we don't need stuff more accurate to within a second every however many thousand years that we can achieve with atomic time. I think the next big changes are going to be, I, I'm imagining now, I could be wrong, but I think are going to be in relation to as we explore the universe around us. So obviously our understanding of time as we know it here on Earth is not the same as time you would experience even on Mars let alone other planets or even indeed deep space. So how are we going to understand and interpret time and measure and regulate ourselves when we've evolved around a 24-hour cycle that only exists here on Earth? I think that will be, that's interesting and I honestly don't know the answer to that. Bloody hell, what a topic to raise. What a, I, You know what, I think that's probably a perfect point to end the interview because, I mean, you've just taken us uh, to the edge of our, known existence already and uh, who knows what lies beyond it and yeah we love a bit of speculation on the real-time show of course none of us know what's going to happen in the future but i think that you could be right there and in a few thousand years when we're just uh you know cyborgs chatting about this podcast i'm sure we'll look back on your predictions and see how prescient they were so thanks uh dr struthers for your time on air and for visiting us and once again your book is entitled hands of time yep and it comes out on 
April 27th in the UK? It is, yeah, and June 13th in the US. Okay, so you can pick up this book from, I would say, reputable bookstores, correct? Or out of the back of a old Fiat Punto, if you know where Rebecca lives. <laughs> yeah, all um, all good bookstores. I can give you a link if that helps. Yeah, that would be lovely. If you want to follow this link, you'll be able to find it in the show notes, of course. Thank you, Rebecca, again for your time. It was a real pleasure, and I hope to get you back on to discuss more about what you and Craig are doing at the moment. We should get Craig on air as well. We should, yeah. yeah we have to turn the heating up for him, but, you know. He'd like that, and turn the lights. <laughs> <laughs> All those creature comforts say, well, he deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> if you would like to ask any questions to Rebecca or to Craig, then please get in touch with us. You can do so via Instagram. I'm there at Rob Nudds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. My regular co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, can be found at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can contact us via email, either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. We'll be back next week with another Q&A episode and an interview with one of Watchmaking's finest. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. 